So that was the introduction. So all of these to keep in mind as we talk about attributes of essence and attributes of action. Now let's talk about a few of the attributes of action. The first one, probably the, the biggest one and the, the clearest one that should have become clear by now is creatorship, al-khaliqiyya. So first point is what do we mean by khaliqiyya? If we understood the proper, in the proper way the proof of the necessary being, the argument for the existence of God, that God is the necessary being, and how we explained him as being a true cause, a final cause, an ultimate cause, that causes everything else, that explains everything else, then we know what khaliqiyya is. That's what we were referring to. So when we say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, one of his attributes or one of his main attributes is al-khaliq, without spending hours explaining philosophically what khaliq means, let's go back to that being when we looked at the world and we said everything looks like it's contingent. It's only possible. There ne it needs something to remove it from the state of limbo because it's only possible. So why did it come into existence? It doesn't need to exist. So why does it exist? So something caused it to exist. And that something cannot be like it also being in the same situation needing something to make it exist, to cause it to exist. If it is, then we have to keep asking the question. Until we get to an entity for which we can't ask that question, we don't need to ask that question, because it exists out of necessity. It exists necessarily, or it's a necessary being. That's the We said, if we don't do that, we always have an infinite regress. An infinite regress is impossible if you have something that's already there. If we didn't have anything that existed, then we wouldn't need to say infinite regress is impossible in this world. Okay? We would, could stop and say, okay, if we keep going, if I hypothesize, if I imagine a world where everything re relies on something before it to exist, then nothing would end, ever end up existing if I don't reach that first cause. Okay, and I could stop there because I'm only imagining. The problem with our world is that there is something that exists. So I have to keep going with my argument. But there is something that happened. Okay, then I have to find the first cause. There is a necessity because the world does exist. There is something. If we understood that, then we also understood instinctively, naturally, simply, what we mean by al-khaliqiyah. By creatorship. This is what we mean by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is a creator. Is that he is that first cause. And we talked about that as being a different kind of cause than the normal causes we see in the world. He not only creates, he's an absolute creator. He's a final and ultimate creator. So let's dig a little bit deeper into that. What does that mean? When we look at the way, when we talk about human beings, sometimes we say we create. So is, is it in that sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates or not? Human beings have the illusion, they think that they create in the sense that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creates. The reality though, is that anyone who has looked at this question in any field, is that human beings don't really create anything out of nothing. The only thing human beings can do is manipulate things that already exist. Not only 
Is this applicable in the outside world? You can't even do it in your mind. You cannot create something out of nothing. Whatever you can come up with, you have seen in whole or in part, and you've reassembled, you've mixed it up, you've played around with it. But you haven't created anything out of nothing. There's always from something that you work. If you're completely empty, not exposed to anything, if you couldn't feel or see or hear or perceive anything that comes into your mind, you wouldn't ever be able to do anything with, with nothing. Even if your mind is completely free, your mind needs something to work with. And it's limited by whatever it has to work with. So of course, someone who is, has more to work with, they're going to have a stronger mind. They've been exposed to more, they've touched on more, they can work with more. But there's a consensus, an absolute consensus amongst thinkers, authors, philosophers about this topic that human beings cannot create anything out of nothing. They always work with something else. So how does this relate to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Here we have to distinguish between two terms. There's more, but let's keep it simple to two terms. In English, sometimes they refer to it as creation ex nihilo. Ex nihilo means out of nothing. It's a Latin term that is used in philosophy. Okay, and in theology, it's very important. Creation ex nihilo means creation out of nothing. And this is an important point in theology and philosophy when they say Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created the world ex nihilo, out of nothing. Okay? In Arabic, there's two terms to keep in mind. There's others, but I said I'm going to limit it to two terms. Let's use the terms khalq and ibda'. The word ibda' always means you're creating something out of nothing. There's other terms, as we said. The Quran refers to terms like fatr, for instance. Al-fatr, faliq. These are other terms, but let's put all of that aside and concentrate on those two terms. Those two give us two different meanings to the word khalaqa, or khalq, or khalaqiyah. I can refer to the act of khalq in the general sense, which means any act of bringing something into existence. Any act. But if I say ibda', I only refer to existence ex nihilo, from nothing. So there is a general way to use the word khalq, which is anything that comes into existence, whether there was something before it that was used for it or not. That's one way to use khalq. And another way to use khalq which is specifically only when there was something before it. So create out of something else. If you read the Holy Quran in a, with that specific lens, it gives you another perspective on the verses that talk about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala creating. There, the Quran makes a distinction at times it talks about khalq and at times it uses other terms. When it talks about khalq, if you want to use this way of understanding the attribute, then when the Quran talks about khalq, 
it's referring to a step. Something that comes into existence from something else. There's a progression. There's development. There was something before and there's something after. For instance, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He talks about the way He creates the embryo into a fetus and the fetus into a, all the way to a baby and then you're born, this is khalq. Every time there's khalq. And there are verses in the Quran that say khalaqakum atwara, for instance. These can be interpreted as phases, as stages, as, and there's a whole lot of interpretations around those. But all of them agree on one thing. That there's a progression. And this opens the door to the big question, which is, so is there any creation in our universe that is really out of nothing? Or did Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala create our world in a way where everything is coming out of something else? So it's just the order in which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala created it. The structure, the principles and laws that He put in place for it. That make it this type of world where everything that exists comes from something else. Something before it. That's just the way the world works. Okay? So keep that in mind. Two ways to understand al-khalq. A restricted way, if you want to be very specific, khalq usually, if you want to be terminologically accurate in the Quran, and I invite you to go back and read the verses carefully when it talks about khalq, and you're going to see, for instance, how the Quran talks, for instance, about creating the human being out of water and out of mud and out of clay and out of uh, bones and out of uh, adding and adding and adding from the fetus, the embryo to the fetus, two, two, two. There's always stages. And that's just a human being. There's a whole lot of other creation. If you see it and you concentrate on that point, you'll see that it's a reference to phases. Or we use the term generally, and we just mean anything that comes into being. Whether there was something before it or not. So this is important because a lot of topics surrounding science and scientific theories and all of that have to do with khalq and creation. And because people mix up those notions and those issues, they think that the Qur'an is saying something very particular when they don't understand the terminology that the Qur'an is using. Okay? So the last point to mention quickly about creation, and this is good to know about generally speaking about the actions of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, is that when I perform an action, there is me, and there is the outcome of what I do, and there is the action. Okay, so let's say I make something. There is me, that's one entity. Let's say I'm making a table, I'm making a house. There's a house, and the action is a third entity. I can look at the action and I could break it down. There's probably planning, there's moving things around, there's doing things. The whole process of the making, depending on what I'm making, it could be very quick or it could be a whole process. Okay? When I look at the action of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, I don't have that third entity. The creation is not a different entity than the outcome. 
the creation and the outcome are one thing. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wants to create a universe, there is no act of creation that, or there is no third entity. There is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and there is the universe. The making part doesn't exist for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. There's no third entity. Okay? And this gives us... A, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically doesn't need to think or plan or, or, or. Right? So that's a simpler way to understand it. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when He creates, if He wills to create, whatever He willed to create is creative. There is no act of creation different from the thing that is created. That's uh, the point. And maybe just to add one more point, because it's related to this and related to the principle of causality that we talked about when we talked about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala being an ultimate cause in the sense of being a necessary being. It's not that this is exactly how it is, but I think it helps us a lot to understand what we mean. If I told you right now, close your eyes and think about an apple. You just created that apple in your mind. Now, if I distracted you and did something where you stop thinking about the apple for a second, does the apple still exist or is it annihilated in that same second in your mind? You can bring it back into existence, but that second where you got distracted from the apple in your mind, that apple no longer exists. You can manipulate that apple however you want. That's how easy it is for you to play around with that apple. You bring it into existence, you stop thinking about it, it goes away, you can bring it back whenever you want. Every instant that that apple exists in your mind, but it exists, every instant that it exists, it's maintained into existence by you. It's not like you created the apple and you left it and then it just stays in your mind because your mind would be pretty cluttered if that were the case. If every time you thought about something, you can just leave it and it stays there. The moment that apple is created, it's created in your mind. That's how easy it is for you to create it. But every second that it stays in existence, you're actively maintaining it in existence the entire time. And then it can stop existing. You make it stop, you stop thinking about it, it stops existing. And you can bring it back. This, I think, helps us a little bit understand the creation of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala when He creates. And the type of necessity and dependence that we have on Him. It's not a matter of being created and left alone. We can't be maintained into existence if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala doesn't maintain us in existence every instant, every second. One way physically to understand this, for instance, is to, let's say, look at a, a container of water. The water in this bottle does not have this shape, naturally. It's maintained in this shape by the bottle. Right? If at any second, 
the shape of this bottle is no longer the same, at any second, the shape of the water changes. So it's maintained every instant in this shape by the bottle. Clear? Same thing with the apple in your mind. Every instant, it's maintained by you in your mind. The moment that changes, the apple is no longer there. The moment the world, the universe, is not maintained in existence with everything in it, it ceases to exist. Existence is not part of it. It has to come from the outside. And that outside is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Unless you find an entity where you tell me, oh, existence is part of it. It's its essence. The appleness, the essence of the apple, the reality of the apple is not to exist. The only thing you can say about the apple is its appleness. But existence is not part of appleness. And that's why it could exist and it could not exist. Something has to give it existence. Something has to take this notion, this idea of appleness, hoarseness, humanness, and give it existence, and then it exists. That's essence and existence. They're not the same. The existence is what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala we're talking about when we say He's creator. He's a creator. He has creatorship. Make sense? There was a question. So basically, before you said that uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he doesn't, like, he doesn't have the third uh, part of, uh, of creating something, which is uh, the action part. So, like, why, like, so after Allah created us, why does he need to always be here if he's not doing the action? Like, uh, like, he already, he already, he, like he, his will is for us to be here, so it's like we're here. The, the action of containing us doesn't need to be there. So what about the apple in your mind? The thing is, I'm not like, just like you said, me creating something is not the same thing as Allah creating something. Okay, so this is where I need you to go back to what I said at the beginning. When I said the type of causality of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is different than our causality. And the, 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 the point that I was making is when you're looking at an attribute of action, concentrate on the limits of the receiver. You are looking at the limitations of the receiver and imposing them on Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. It's not that Allah needs to. There's no Allah needs to. My limitations as an entity is that I don't have existence. I need existence to exist from the outside. Yeah, like Me that, and the whole world. That's what I mean. Like I, I mean basically like uh like uh like uh God is un like God is unlimited, like I don't think like the thing after what you told us that Allah doesn't need the third part of action then he wouldn't need to contain us if what you said is like unless unless you meant something else of the third parts of the like uh, of him not uh, of not of him not doing the action he 
he just needs to think like he just needs the will of it then it's there like he doesn't need to mix things he doesn't need to like that's what i think that's that's what i got to like by what you mean okay like, he doesn't need to mix two things to make a third thing the third thing just comes okay so what are the two things that he's mixing he doesn't mix that's what i'm trying to say it's basically it's like what you said is that he doesn't do the action part like of him like the, the like the dambus like hitting it and then it goes in the in the wood he doesn't need to do that it's just in the wood right away okay so that's what i think it is so why would he need to contain us if he maintains okay, so us? flip flip what you're saying you're concentrating only on allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and i gave you a rule before we started i said apply this rule to all the attributes of action or to all the actions of allah the limits that you're thinking about, whatever they are, you have to concentrate on the receiver, not on Allah. Study the receiver. Study the nature of the receiver. You understand why the action is limited. The action is like a container that can only contain according to its size. Yeah. Like that's on the receiving side. On the receiving side. So the universe, let's say, is the receiving side. Okay. The receiving side does not have existence. The universe has universe universeness. Okay? It is what it is in the world of ideas. So basically, if, if there was no God, we would cease to exist. Of course. That's, the, that's what you're trying to say. It's like he's maintaining us by him existing. No, not, not by him existing. By, maintain, by wanting to maintain us into existence. He may exist and decide that I don't exist. Yeah, I understand. But okay. Like, if he, like, uh, that's, okay. Like, basically, it's, uh, like, what I'm trying to say is basically, uh, yeah, ba what you're saying is he just wants us to exist, but he doesn't need to maintain us. We need him to maintain us. He doesn't need to maintain us. We have that limitation. You get it? Because we don't have existence in our essence. We don't have existence. The kind of creature we are, we don't exist. We're creatures that don't exist by our nature. Oh, I see, I see. And all creatures are like that. And that's the reality of what we meant when we said things are contingent. We're only possible creatures. We're only ideas. Everything that exists is only an idea. But an idea into which existence was added and now it exists so where is that existence coming from and it's not like an injection that's the point that we're trying to make it's not like you can put it in motion give it existence and now it exists on its own and this is not because god can't it's because the type of creature it is requires being given existence every second to exist Again, you're looking at God. We're not types of creatures that can exist. Okay, but could he make creatures that can exist? That would be a necessary being that has oh. existence as part of it. And he can't make, he can't make necessary beings. No, he can. Then it's like, can God create a God? And if yeah, he created, it's not really a God, right? No, but I'm not saying he created a God as powerful as him, but could he create something necessary? 
Could a necessary being, forget God, could a necessary being create a necessary being? Oh, that means it must have been, okay, never mind, cancel it. Okay, so it's not, the issue is not, (laughs) the issue is not that everything that exists must be a necessary being or not, okay? But I don't want to go into it because it's going to be a huge philosophical topic that leads to, to nothing. There are some in their very limited way of understanding that think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, even within Islam, some scholars thought that, and it's completely wrong. There are some who thought that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala basically created the world, set it in motion. And this is probably the best way to understand the main proof that comes from Aristotle for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because it's called the, the proof of the first mover. I don't know if you guys have heard of the first mover or not. But basically the world is what it is. All it needed is a mover. A little push. A little push to set it into motion. To set it into existence. The, the, the proof of the first mover that came from Aristotle does not need a God to keep the world in existence. All it needs is a first mover. And in that theory, that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in that theory is defined as thought thinking itself. In the world of Aristotle and his likes, because a lot of philosophers followed the same ideas, this is 2000 years ago, and a lot of our Islamic philosophers were of the same opinion, and that's of course wrong. They think that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He would never lower himself. It's unworthy of God to be bothered with the details of something like the universe. Why would he be bothered? What's the universe to God? What's the universe? What's the apple you create in your mind? What is it? Oh, because they're saying basically that push was a little hard on him. It was so huge. Not, Not the push. Doing everything else would be like too much, you know? No, no. It's not. Yeah, it's not too much. You are, it's too insulting, exactly. It's too insulting, that's the best way to put it. You are the greatest scientist on earth. Oh, it's too insulting. And we ask you, can you please create a little kitten in your mind? And you have, you know, the intellectual power of a Stephen Hawking. And instead of contemplating, you know, astrophysical formulas and trying to solve the problems of black holes and, 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 you're thinking about this kitten. Like that's an insult to you and your mind. So, okay, and this is this is at the level of like very limited human beings. Now imagine what Aristotle defines God as thought, pure thought. So all he needs to do is to set the world in motion. So that's that's done by intellect as well. Okay? So he sets it in motion, and that's it. It's like a thought that is sustained, like you said. That's how Thought, Aristotle thought about it. So he defines God as thought thinking itself because nothing is worthy of being thought about except himself. So he is in eternal contemplation of himself. But the world was set in motion by him, but it doesn't need him for sustain, sustenance or being sustained in existence. He made it that way. Yeah, yeah. So that's an insult to say that? Or like to think that because why would like uh, because 
Is it is it so hard? Is it so hard for a guy to maintain us? So hard. It's like that's what I'm saying. Important. Is that why it's an insult? Okay, which part? Which part is it? Like, why is it an insult? He's saying why. Like, why you're saying bad? In the, in the theory, okay, so there's two things. In the theory of Aristotle, okay, now now we are, we are in Aristotle's theory. He says it would be an insult for God to be bothered with anything except himself. And the philosophers, a number of Islamic philosophers, Ibn Rushd, Ibn Sina, others, that's the path that they followed to. Okay. So that world, in that world, God is not what we refer to in theology as a personal God. He's not a God that you pray to. He's not a God that you worship. Or if you worship, He doesn't care, or perhaps some philosophers have said, He doesn't even know. It's not because He can't know. It's because how insignificant are you and your worship and the entire universe you exist in, Hatta would be bothered by your worship. Do whatever you gotta do and it's good for you. It doesn't mean there's no worship. It means you do worship. But the but the worship, the worship is for you. So that you end up something. You end up in a way that is good for you, 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 you. But it has nothing to do with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala needing something, wanting something from you. Okay? Okay, that's one thing. Now, let's forget what Aristotle says. Now we remove ourselves from Aristotle. His sahna, we're here thinking about what's going on in the world. We're looking at these philosophers. We're looking at Aristotle and these philosophers. We have to assess, is that theory valid? Can we agree with it or not? This is what I'm saying is, this is wrong. If we understand what the Holy Quran says about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, we can't accept a God that doesn't know what's going on in his creation. Two huge issues with that. The first one is they completely misunderstood how God really is. And this is very likely when you only want to rely on your mind instead of seeing what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us about himself. How are we supposed to know how God is? These are some of the greatest intellects of humanity. This is where they ended up when they relied too much only on their intellect and not enough on revelation. Okay? That's one issue. The other issue is they're giving way too much credit to what? To the rest of the creation. To the rest of the universe. So when we look at the way the world is, when we look at the universe, when we look at contingent things, and Islamic scholars have added this as a proof, as a philosophical proof, we say one of the reasons, one of the ways to prove Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's existence is through an argument called the argument of impoverishment. Impoverishment as in faqr. Burhan al-faqr. Everything to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is faqir. Everything is impoverished, is in an absolute state of poverty, of neediness. Absolute. Absolute means that your very nature is neediness. It's not that you, you are needy only in your rizq. It's not that you are only needy in your food, or your, you need mercy, or blessing, or health from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Like how you survive is by needing. Your existence is neediness itself. Mm-hmm. 
That's the meaning of absolute faqr, absolute neediness. Otherwise, you wouldn't be faqir. So one way to understand a verse, for instance, that says, Ya ayyuham nas, O people, antumul fuqara'u ilallah. Wallahu huwal ghani. Okay, one way to understand it is, it's talking about money, it's talking about, you know, wealth or food or blessings or sustenance or... But the deeper meaning is existence. Oh, you people, you are in a state of absolute poverty in your own existence in relation to Allah. And Allah has absolute sufficiency. That's ghina. He's sufficient. He's autonomous. He's independent in an absolute way. And you, in an absolute way, depend on Him. You're impoverished towards Him. If you understand that, then you understand how the type of creature you are, you cannot exist for one second, one instant, without being given in that instant your existence. The lack is in you. It's not that Allah can't. It's that the receiving end doesn't have capacity for enduring for maintaining its existence or being given existence beyond the instant in which it is given existence. And I'll add one more thing that becomes the dilemma is that the greater of a being you are, the more existence you have. Which means you are even more impoverished towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But that's a deeper idea. So if you apply it, for instance, to prophets, you apply it to beings that have a lot more existence, they need the greatness, their greatness, they are greater creatures, they have a greater need for Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala's giving, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala giving them everything they have, than simpler, smaller creatures. Anyways, there was a question? Yes. Yeah, I was just going to ask, uh, so for us to die, would, it, would it, he just have to stop giving us existence? Like stop maintaining us? Okay, so death, two, two meanings. You said for us to die, he would give us. The way we usually die, us people, no, that's not what it is at all. In our world, because we live in a physical world, we see dying as something being removed. But... If we remove ourselves from the physical world and we have the big picture, there is no nothing that's... We can apply the laws of thermodynamics here and say there's nothing being... Nothing is created, nothing is destroyed, everything's transformed. This is just a transformation. You're going from one place to another. Death is the exact same thing as a fetus coming into the world. You were in one world, the world of embryos and fetuses, and you came into another world, which is the world people live in. And you're going to, you're crossing. And you're going into another world. That other world has no body. So you leave the body behind and you move on. That's one thing. Your question was, so if, you know, he stopped thinking or he wanted for us to cease existing. But that's not death. That's annihilation. That's you no longer exist and you have to think about that. Like this needs you know, sitting and thinking, what does it mean that you stop existing? 
And because a lot of people don't have an idea that there's anything after they die, this is how they imagine death, annihilation. Like, they imagine death as equal to nothingness. Then, of course, that's a traumatic idea. Then why is this, what is this all for? If at the end of this, there is absolute nothingness. So you have a lot of philosophers and a lot of like these big thinkers and because they're atheistic, because they do not believe in an afterlife, in their minds there is nothingness that happens at death. Of course they're extremely cynical. Of course they're frustrated and depressive and they're suicidal. Because what is this all for? If the end is nothing but nothingness. But if you, in your idea, in your version of the world, it's not nothingness. It's like, it's all the same. It's just, we continue on this path. But we're just moving from this world with its own laws and rules and principles and a way of functioning into another world that has its own laws and rules and way of functioning that is completely different. And I'm no longer going to need this body. So we're still going to have to be maintained in like heaven and hell. Mm -hmm. 100% you're going to have to be maintained. As you were maintained before.